0: Dr. Dale on quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello everybody and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau and always our good friend Dr. Dale Rollins joins us. An exciting time of the year to be talking about quail, but maybe more importantly, it's an important time to be asking Dr. Rollins how you're doing. Dale, how you feeling? I understand you've been under the weather recently. Gary, I had my legs knocked out from under me,
1: literally, I, back in late July. I came down with a syndrome. It's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Don't ask me to spell it. G-B-S if you want to Google it. Uh, It's basically an ascending paralysis. I woke up about 2.30 one night to uh, use the restroom, and I felt like I was walking on Ronald McDonald's shoes. Really? Four inches of foam rubber. Uh, 48 hours later, uh, I had a very ataxic gait, which means I was stumbling around like a drunk. Uh, And so my daughter carried me in to get medical attention the next morning. Uh, 24 hours later, I was diagnosed with this Guillain barre syndrome, uh, which basically is an ascending paralysis, starts at your feet and moves up your body. And uh, it can be quite serious because it can get in your diaphragm, and then you have to be traked and be on a ventilator, so that could be life threatening. Uh, fortunately, mine seemed to stop at my shoulders, and so I've been on uh, a regiment. Since that time, that uh, my progress is pretty good. Great. For those of you in uh, the Dallas area, you probably know that uh, your center for the Cowboys, Travis Frederick, had this last year. He's playing football That's again right. this year. That's right. So my goal is to be walking four miles a day come November 1. That's an ambitious goal because I'm only walking about 100 yards right now. But I appreciate all the cards and letters and prayers, and uh, I'm on the road to recovery. It's just going to take a little while.
0: Outstanding, and awareness is important. One of the things you mentioned, you'd like for others to be more aware of things like that because it's, it's a rare situation, It's right? a rare
1: situation, supposedly about one in 200,000. Once you get in the circle and you're in the hospital where, where other people have heard about it, all of a sudden you find out, well, so-and-so had that, but I had never heard of it. And of interest to our listeners, dogs can get it. Interesting. It's called coon-hound paralysis, and it's essentially the same syndrome in uh, dogs that that we would have in humans. Now, I can't see anybody that's going to pay as much as it's going to cost my insurance company to save a dog, but regardless, (laughs) dogs can get it. But I said, I'm on the road recovery. I feel good. Uh, I'll be in rehab for anywhere from another outpatient rehab for another three months to maybe as much as a year or so.
0: Well, keep us posted. We're proud to have you back, and I know you're excited about uh, the immediate time frame in front of us. Uh, It's time to talk quail. People asking about quail forecasts and what that season ahead may hold. What's your early impressions? Unimpressive.
1: Uh, this is also dove season. That's right. And for the second year in a row, at least here in West Texas, we've had no doves. I mean, it's if you were to think there was anything that's a given in West Texas, it's dove hunting. But we had not had any doves the last two years. So uh, we're anxiously awaiting our doves. Uh, our initial reports on quail vary. Across Texas, I have a trap line of about 50 people that I send an email to, many of whom you and I have worked with for mm-hmm. many, many years. Right. For the most part, these are not professionals. These are not necessarily biologists, but they are what I call students of quail, and they take their quail very seriously. And so I will send them an email in early August saying, okay, guys, what do you think? Is it going to be a 2 on a scale of one ten, 10, or is it going to be a 10? The average score for 2019 is about a four. Oh so boy. it's going to be below average, probably. Areas of the state seem
0: to be better than others right now?
1: Some areas. Uh, the blue quail, we'll talk about that in just a minute. The blue quail uh, are one of the brighter spots. Uh, so once you get out west of uh, roughly Fort Stockton, Midland, Odessa, there are some bright spots out there relative to the blue quail. The bobwhite numbers, uh, again, I can I can show you five people within 50 miles that are giving me a report. Four of them will be a three or a four. One of them will be an eight. Now, you could say, well, that guy's just, doesn't know what he's talking about or he's overly optimistic or something. But there can be that kind of variability. It's probably not weather-related. You know, we're not saying that so-and-so 20 miles from him has got 50% more rain, but for whatever reason. And I can name you several of those areas that I call outliers. Mm-hmm. They just don't conform to the general. Thank goodness. I'm proud for them, and, uh, and we're we're wanting to know, you know, why is old Bob over there? He continues to defy the trends, but uh, we're proud for Bob at the time of being.
0: Are there some factors that contribute to maybe a cyclical nature of quail populations, or or is there a predictable pattern to it?
1: Yes and no. Uh, Until about 10 years ago, we didn't use the term cycle in quail populations. We used the term eruptions, boom bust, and we still largely talk about that, and again, it's it's moisture-regulated, as far as we know. Uh, uh, precipitation plays a huge part in that equation. But about uh, 15 years ago, Dr. Fred Guthrie and some of his students began to look at some patterns at de- various eco-regions within the state of Texas. And the one for the rolling plains and the high plains both fit the description of a cycle on about a five-year basis. Okay. What happens about every five years? El nino La Niña. So when we get a good El Niño situation for a year and a half, two years, that typically coincides with the boom. We've had the El Niño popula- El Niño uh, precipitation pattern, until about mid-July of this year, and boy, when it shut off, it shut off. So the the opposite side of that equation, La Niña, which is less desirable, we call her the witch. And she returned earlier than expected. And like I said, it's been bone dry and hotter than Hades over most of West Texas and South Texas. Uh, Some of my trap line down in South Texas, they had like six to seven inches of rain for the calendar year. We've been quite fortunate rain-wise up here. Again, it shut off in July, but we'd had like almost 15 inches uh, by July 1st. We were all looking at that amount of rainfall, what we carried through the winter, we were very optimistic vegetation-wise, but all along I and other serious students of quail said, did we really carry, off, carry over enough breeding capital to realize a flush of quail, no pun intended? And, and our answer is no, mm. we did not. So we just didn't have enough birds available in the breeder population
0: to capitalize on those great conditions. Today we sit at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch outside of We drive to the area today, Dale, and the eyeball test told you what, as you looked at some of the country around here.
1: Well, uh, again, I'd been sidelined with this Guillain-Barre syndrome. I'd been in the hospital and out of the loop for about six weeks. It had been six weeks since I'd been up here, and literally it went from beautiful late June to uh, typically kind of depressing here in uh, mid-September. So that's not unusual. Again, we You know, hot, dry, late July, August is the norm rather than the exception. But we just haven't carried through enough birds. Now, we had a pretty good nesting season. We had uh, 35 nests produced by our radio-marked quail. On a per capita basis, that's been pretty good. We just didn't have enough hens out there trying again our numbers were low we had anticipated that ever since uh, last winter that that could be an issue for us we also again as we spoke earlier we have a geriatric quail population we really haven't raised any in two years so we desperately needed this year to help us get back in the get back in the black so to speak economically speaking uh, some places have seen that other places i think are going to be kind of like the research ranch probably if anything a little disappointed Two reasons for that. Again, all the beautiful habitat that we had. And then two, 2016 is fresh on our minds. And two thousand on our 1 to 10 scale, it was a 12. A 12. And so people are what they're calling a 4 right now. Had we not had 2016, they'd probably be calling it a 6. But we know now what our bar is,
0: and so we can't rate this a year. Anywhere above average. Can there be anything between now and quail season to improve that number? Are there certain factors that could occur?
1: There could be. Late nesting uh, can be a bonus. Uh, For those of us in the rolling plains in North Texas, we've really missed our window. Uh, If we were to get it, here we are in mid-September, if we were to have a three inch rain today, we might see just a little bit of nesting activity, but it wouldn't pull our fat from the fire. Now, if we're down in South Texas, they've hatched birds every month of the year except for January. So they still have time and you know maybe a tropical storm, a tropical depression comes through and gives Hebronville 8 inches of rain here over the next month, they'll have some late winter birds or some birds that are not going to mature until mid winter kind of thing because they can
0: have a late hatch. Odds are not very good for us. Blue quail, a little different story. Sounds like you're a little more optimistic and encouraged by the blue quail. The reports that I'm getting
1: uh, again vary but Typically they're ranging from about a four to an eight where most of the Bob White scores are kind of harboring around that four to five, a little bit less than average. Some of the better reports that I'm getting are out there southwest of uh, the Midland-Odessa area, Crane County, Upton County, uh, some of my reporters out there are giving that an eight. Eight would be a great score on blue quail. Reason for that, again, they've had better rains during fall and winter, so their country looks good. They carried over more birds. If you've got blue quail versus Bob White's, odds are you're going to carry over more blues than you do Bob's. They're just a hardier bird. I was going to ask, why is that? So they're kind of like Spanish goat and Angora goat. They're just blues can make a living off the tabletop here. Bob White's got to have a little bit more help. Uh, They're not subjected to the same hunting pressure. They're not vulnerable to hunting pressure like Bob White's might be. So, again, once you get west of roughly Big Lake, uh, Big Lake to uh, about Big Spring west of that line, out through there and through the trans Much of that country, that uh, southern Permian Basin, seems to be having some pretty good numbers. Well,
0: it begs the question, Dr. Dale, uh, as a hunter, should I be in the field this season? Maybe I shouldn't hunt. Those population numbers may not be able to sustain the hunting pressure that I and others might bring to it. What are your thoughts on that? Good question. I'm going to withhold judgment on that right now
1: because, again, we're still hopeful with as much cover as we've got And a lot of my forecasters said, well, I'm giving it a three or a four, but it's so much cover, we're not sure we're seeing all the quail. So with some cooler temperatures that have got to be on the way here fairly soon, hopefully we'll be seeing more birds than what we thought. So maybe that average of a four may go up to a five or maybe even a six in some conditions. But let's say that it stays at a three to a four. I can tell you right now, we're not going to have any hunting here at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And I'm obligated to three hunts that we've auctioned off, but they're just going to have to take a rain check because we don't have the bird. We don't have the capital. I don't want to dip into it for really two reasons. One is we're just barely there. And the second reason is now we're back in this La Nina forecast. So that means we're basically going to have to stretch out what birds we've got through another probably pretty hard year next year. Now, if you think you've got enough birds, again, if you score yours at a six or a seven or possibly an eight, that's uh, all things in moderation. Kind Of thing it should rule that for those of you that are on the borderline, you say, Well, I think I'd like to hold one or two hunts, go for it. Mm-hmm. I would try to do those hunts earlier in the season and later in the season as you hunt quail by whites. As you hunt by whites later in the quail season, there is a continuum in the forms of mortality that we call additive mortality versus compensatory mortality. Kind of fuzzy math. You read about it in the textbooks and so forth, but basically what it means is this. If you shot 50 quail on the 1st of December, not all of those quail were going to live to May 1 anyway. Some of them were going to die from some other agents. Makes sense. Hawks, bobcats, hunting could compensate for some of that loss. If it was additive mortality, that means that 50 birds you shot in December means there were 50 birds less because solely of hunting. Other, other factors were operating independently of that. As you approach the end of quail season, the odds of that mortality becoming more additive relative to compensatory is greater. So you'd you'd want to probably focus whatever hunting pressure a little bit earlier and and kind of lay off during the month of February. That's tough for a quail hunter to do. February is a great month to hunt. We all love to hunt in February, but that would be a suggestion. One other thing I would have you thinking about, and, and I've done this for 20 years, so don't tell me it can't be done. It can be done if you want to do it. It's what I call quail snooker. Tell us. You familiar with snooker? Yes. Snooker is a game, a billiard game, but the level of prowess, of expertise, is much higher than a 7-foot 8-ball table. You don't go in there and shooting hard and just hope for luck when you're playing snooker. It's a game of finesse. Quail snooker is where you say, we're only going to shoot the cocks. We're only going to shoot the roosters boy, you say you can't do that. Trust me, you can do that. And also, trust me, it'll make you a better shot. So when we're in a situation, my buddy Steve and I especially, we've done this for 20 years. If we're in a situation where the numbers are down and we're just taking it easy on our quail population, we'll play quail snooker. We put a self-imposed limit of two hens on ourselves. If we shot a second hand, if we kill three roosters and then we shoot two hens, our hunt is over. So it puts the motivation... For you to focus on what you're doing and literally focus is the key here because you're looking at the head right. of that quail. You've got to play the right, play the light just right. There's some several things, again, that are very snooker oriented as opposed to eight ball, but you can do it for Bob Watts. Difficult to do on blue quail, but on Bob White you can do that. I've got one of my favorite pictures of, it's little Annie after a uh, uh, quail snooker hunt in 2001. We had 27 quail on the pick pickup, 24 of them were roosters. <laughs> so it can be done. Now, that, The only biological reason you do that is to say you've got more roosters in the population than hens, so you could afford to take some of those uh, without having any concern about dipping into the biological capital of your breeding population.
0: But it can be done. You can recognize those it, birds when they flush. You can tell the difference between you play the light
1: right and you know what you're looking for. Now if
0: you've ever shot a
1: bow and arrow, you know that you aim small, miss small. So if you're focused on the head of that quail if that's where your eyes folks and that's where your shotgun is going, you're going to be a better shot. I can promise you that too. So there's two reasons. If you've never tried it, this might be a great year to try. Don't cuss me. As like I said, it can be done. Look for, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes kind of thing, and again, your your shotgunning will be
0: better. There's also some goals I suspect regarding crippling loss and and doing things related to maximize the efficiency of your hunt.
1: Yeah, again, if we're going to do any kind of hunting, we want to reduce whatever birds that we have unintentionally lost. In other words, we've wounded them. Crippling loss can be as high as 25%. So out of every four birds you shot, you only retrieve three of them kind of thing. That should be disturbing to any quail hunter. I mean, there's several things, several reasons for why that is. One is, and I've seen it too often, Covey flushes, the guy's got a five-shot semi-automatic, bang, 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 bang. He's shooting until they fly out of sight. Odds of killing that bird are minimal after a certain distance, but the odds of crippling that bird are fairly high. Any bird with certainly more than one pellet in it is probably not going to live. So just because you didn't retrieve it doesn't mean that you didn't kill the bird. Good point. And so that's something that you got to add on to your hunting-related mortality. Another thing that I encourage... Well, I personally, again, this is something that I personally do, is I don't use cheap shotgun shells. Your cheap, quote-unquote, dove and quail loads that I can get for $6.99 a box, I avoid them like the plague. I don't have professional backgrounding in ballistics, but this is my reason. I buy a target load. Okay. Double A is what I shoot. They'll cost me about $2 more a box, but to me, they're a better patterning shotgun shell. Again, I'm not a ballistics expert, so I'm, I could be taken to task on this. My thought on this is that a good, chilled, hard shot gives you a uniform pattern. Okay. One that is softer lead, like your cheaper dove and quail loads, is going to have some deformed pellets. So you're going to have this, and you're going to have a, a more irregular pattern. If you're shooting quail at a distance of 25 yards, shouldn't matter. But if you're one of the people that like to try to stretch that range out to 40 yards or so, in my opinion, that's Poor economics is to try to save two bucks two bucks on a box of shells. Go ahead and get a quality shot shell. And the third thing is, and again, as quail hunters, we ought to all be doing this. That's hunting with good dogs. You ought to have a dog, and I often brag on Little Annie, who was the best quote-unquote dead bird dog that I've ever seen. Uh, little Annie was my prototype better. Brittany Setter cross. Weighed about 32 pounds, 25 pounds of it. was hard. I think you had a chance to hunt with it, if I I'm did. not mistaken. Gary. I did. And she was the, the best dog being able to retrieve a downed bird. There are a lot of dogs that'll point quail. That's great. But what really makes you feel good about feeding a bird dog year round is when they go above and beyond and bring back that bird to hand that otherwise would have been lost to you and found by the coyotes, kind of thing. So that's uh, I don't know. That's I don't know if you can really teach that much or not. Just some dogs are gifted. Britneys are typically. Better okay, and a lot. Uh, one of the trends that you see in today's squirrel hunters is uh, that they carry a lab with them. Yes. And the lab is has the specific duties of retrieving or a cocker. An English cocker is another mm-hmm. one like that. So there are dogs that are beginning to breeds that are beginning to be uh, talked about and used, even here in West Texas, with the goal of reducing crippling loss. So that's that's another thing that you can do. There's a couple of other things. One is, and if if you're in vogue, and I don't mean to be this and say this in a haughty manner. If you're in vogue in today's quail world, you're shooting a double gun, uh, side by side, or most commonly an over and under. Personally, I shoot an over and under. When I was mad at quail growing up as a kid until the time I was 30 years old, I carried a Remington 870 pump, five shots, and I called it KOMA because it just kept pumping out those hits like KOMA radio station did. Most of us. As quail hunters, we're 60 plus. We shouldn't be mad at quail anymore. <laughs> and so we should enjoy the quality of the hunt and, and the having the double gun as opposed to the old humpback browning like a lot of them carried back during the 1960s and 70s. You can only shoot twice. So again, bang, bang, not bang, 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 bang until those birds are out of sight because you really, the odds of crippling those birds and again, Being unable to retrieve them is is, uh, palpable.
0: What about gauge of gun that you're shooting?
1: Well, another potential issue here because, again, if you're in vogue, 28s are really popular right now. I never heard of a 28-gauge shotgun when I was growing up. You had a 12 or maybe a 20 or a 16. Nobody shot 28s. I mean, they've come on the scene in the last 10 or 15 years. I've got one. It's what I shoot. I love it. A lot of people shoot 410s. The point being, with these two smaller gauge guns, now we're talking about really guns that are supposed to be used in the hands of an expert, not your average quail hunter. And nobody likes to think they're an average quail hunter, uh, but uh, unless you spend a lot of time with a shotgun in your hand, you'll be much better off with a 12 gauge or with a 20 gauge and getting that extra uh, eighth or quarter an ounce of shot as opposed to a 410 or a 28 gauge. Uh, that's something that you just got to ask yourself: Am I up to this? If you're questioning whether you're up to it or not, go out and spend a day on the sporting clay range or the, or the skeet range and see how well you do. It doesn't hurt anything to lose one of those clay birds, but it may—I should make you hurt if you cripple a, a, a wild
0: bird. Let's talk about uh, some of the regulatory framework in which we approach a quail season. Some of the specific rules, uh, length of season, bag limits. Are there ways in which some of those regulatory Dynamics can improve or help quail populations? In
1: theory, possibly. In practice, probably not. Uh, and, and I have empathy here for Texas Parks and Wildlife, who's our state agency for setting the, the season lengths and the bag limits. And Texas has very generous season lengths, four-month quail season. Very generous bag limits, 15 birds a day. So in a year like this, when we're kind of on the cusp of having a decent quail year or not, or if we were to turn back the clock a couple years ago, 2012, when we didn't think we had any quail left in Texas, there's still a four-month season and still a a 15-bird-a-day bag limit, and a lot of people will start screaming at Parks and Wildlife, shut the season down. Right. Why have a 120-day season? Have a 30-day season. Shut off February. Uh, Why don't you reduce the bag limit down to eight birds a day, something like that. So there's what sound like very valid arguments. And if let's say that you own a ranch and you've got 2,000 acres out here in Fisher County. What Parks and Wildlife would say, you've got some good points here. You implement them on your 2,000 acres. But statewide, you're operating at a scale down here. We're operating at a statewide scale. And we're not going to do anything that's going to hamper hunter opportunities. And there's... Several reasons for that, not the least of which is their budget is based largely on sales of hunting licenses. So anything that might curtail hunting license sales, they're going to take a very hard look at. So, uh, again, what, what's working in operation at the state level or even at the region level doesn't hold much water as far as a season length as if it was your 2,000 acres. After. And they would encourage you. Now, if you're like most ranchers that I deal with in West Texas, they don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to tell you and your party that I'm leasing to, sorry, guys, we're shutting it down this year. Because then that's a loss of income on their part, too. So yes. they would rather the state have to take the role of being the bad person and say well, we're just following along with what the state says. state's going to allow for a fairly liberal season length and a liberal bag limit. On the bag limit side, if we were to cut it from 15 down to 8, we'd have no impact on the total number of birds that were shot. Based upon some studies they did 20 years or more ago, you would have to reduce the bag limit to four birds per day before you had any measurable impact on the number of birds. What is that basically saying? 80% of the quail hunters never kill over four birds a day. So very few of them are out there killing limits of quail in a down year. But if there are people out there, I mean, if you've got good dogs and good connections or a good lease, the opportunity is there, and that's that's basically where you have to have some self-control. If you've got a long-term lease or own that property, it behooves you to say, i got to think about the long run. I'm not just thinking about 2019. I'm thinking about 2021,
0: 2022. Which leads to the question, Dr. Dale, as a lease hunter, can I overhunt the property that I have access to? Can I make that big of an impact?
1: As on smaller properties, yes. The answer is yes. And there are certain things that sometimes we advocate like feeders or supplemental feeding. Those birds become uh, very accustomed to where those feeders are. And, I mean, my dogs, if they see a feeder, a lot of times they'll stop and point. They're conditioned to know, or they smell Milo or something. They're conditioned to know, hey, I smell Milo or I see that barrel. Odds are, rather than me getting shocked for busting a covey, I want to be cautious right here because odds are there's quail there. If you've got situations like that, or if you're, uh, you know, let's say, Gary, that you and I are in an outfitter business and we know we've got to be able to entertain 200 clients between right. now and the end of February. The tendency to put additional pressure on those birds is just greater than if you and I are just recreationally hunting it. And if, if we don't hunt in January, that's not a big deal. We'll hope the cowboys are decent enough to watch them instead of going quail hunting, kind of thing. So the opportunity is there. Again, it's more of an issue at a small scale
0: than at a large scale. Is the covey size or those visual uh, tips and pointers that we see driving our property, seeing around, is it an indication of quail po- population? Should I count on that to tell me anything? It's, it's a seat of the pants kind of an indicator. It's, it's almost like the
1: eight-point buck rule in whitetail deer management. Uh, you just got to appreciate if you say we're not going to shoot anything but eight-point bucks. Well, there's a lot of slop in that kind of thing. If you try to base it on covey size, the biggest issue there is. Let's say that you've got a covey that you come out uh, today and it had seven birds in it. You say, "Well, I'm laying off that covey." And then you go on down the road two miles and you see, a, or half a mile, and you see a covey with five birds in it. I'm laying off that covey. You come back two weeks now. In between there, you flush a covey of twelve birds. Bang, bang, bang. That's probably those two of those coveys, smaller coveys, coalescing the ideal, the optimal size of a bobwhite covey for energy's sake is 11 birds. So they're going to try to hang in there in that 10 to 12 bird kind of covey range. And so what you could be doing is misinterpreting covey size to say, hey, I've got more quail than what I thought I had.
0: Let's finish up by talking about some things that we can do to enjoy quail, the great outdoors, in a down year, those years in which the birds just may not be as plentiful as we'd like for them to be. There's some things we can do out there and really enjoy the quail.
1: Before I get there again, I want to follow up one last thing about uh, when to stop hunting for the year. I've been hunting quail for almost 50 years. And even in a really good year like 2016, you get to a point in the season. You may just be by yourself, but it's it's been a long day. Maybe the birds have been, you just have a sense that the birds are more haggard. You, as a student of quail, ask yourself or tell yourself, remind yourself, enough's enough they've had a tough year or they've been through a lot i've shot my share of quail i've had my share of quail dinners we're going to lay off from this point i can't tell you when that is but if you've hunted quail 20 years or more you ought to know when that what time in the year when enough is enough so you feel it you feel it and so that's not a very scientific explanation but Hopefully, you can appreciate
0: it. And if you make that decision, maybe next time you take a camera to the field.
1: That's right. Uh, there are some ways that I call catch and release quail hunting. And like in 2011, 2012, I carried my video camera. I didn't shoot a bird those two years. In fact, I think it was three years that I didn't shoot a bird. But I shot a lot of birds with my camera. Either my video camera, and I love to show those. I post those on our Facebook page all the time. Uh, great memories of, of me and you. or. Whoever I'm hunting with kind of thing, sometimes some very comical moments because of the easy shots that you miss. When you take video of a covey of quail flushing, they look as big as turkeys flying away from you. And you think, how could anybody miss those? <laughs> bang, 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 and then you go to cussing at the dog kind of thing. Uh, so those can just be personally entertaining. Now, professionally, again, a good quail covey rise photograph is the money shot. Yes. That's the one you're after. And I can tell you, there's a good reason why you don't see more great covey-rise photos in the magazines. That is a tough shot to get. You're managing the light. You've got to have those birds flush up above the vegetation. They've got to have blue sky behind them. Everything's got to be pretty good. But uh, our website, quailresearch.org, yes, has right. a great one that our uh, director of development, Phil Lamb, took a uh, great covey-rise shot. And when you get one of those, as opposed to a video, you're, your use for that video is somewhat limited. But a great photo that you can put up on your wall... That's a memory forever. So I, I encourage you uh, to try both of those hunting with a camera. And let me give you just a couple of quick tips. If you've got your video camera, especially if you're the hunter and I'm the videographer, I'm walking right behind you. Yes. I'm shooting right over your right shoulder just like I'm an extension of your shotgun. I'm not zoomed in very tight. In fact, I'm, I'm two-thirds of the way zoomed out. I want a wide angle. When that dog flushes those birds and you walk in there, I want to be able to see the cover rise eyes. Again, Blue sky. I want to see, see and hear your shooting, hopefully get a retrieve of the bird dog, all of those kind of things, and you'll watch those things uh, forever. Forever. So there are some trophies out there. You don't always have to be bringing them in a game bag and skewering them over mesquite coals to have a memorable quail hunt.
0: Great advice from Dr. Dale Rollins, always uh, someone that can help you better enjoy the great outdoors, the upcoming quail season, and all that it is. I hope you've enjoyed this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. For more information about these topics and others, please go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. That's quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time, see you there. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.